Coming up on Tech Nation, what if we could get the antibodies from all the various strains of COVID-19, put them together, and get them into one IV drug? Well, that's exactly what Gigagen has done. Today, I speak with geneticist Dr. David Johnson, the co-founder, president, and CEO of Gigagen. Then you've heard about your gut microbiome. Well, your skin also has a microbiome, and problems can lead to severe skin rashes for cancer patients, eczema, psoriasis, and more. Dr. Travis Whitfield tells us what Azetra Biosciences is testing. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2011, I interviewed Columbia University professor Brian Green, the author of The Hidden Reality, Parallel Universes, and the Deep Laws of the Cosmos. I asked him what he meant by parallel or multiple universes. Well, there was a time until pretty recently that whenever we use the word universe, we had the traditional notion in mind, everything, you know, the whole totality. And what's happened in physics in the last couple of decades is we've been led to ideas that suggest that what we thought to be everything is a real tiny part of a much bigger whole in which our universe would be perhaps one of many universes. And that's what's led to this idea of multiverse, multiple universes. You know, I think it was over 10 years ago that Sir Martin Rees, who I believe is now Lord Martin Rees, he came and was talking about multiverse, you know, and it was the first time that I'd really heard about it. And I have to tell you, there were a number of people, there were sort of two reactions. One were the science fiction people saying, we told you so, we told you so. And then there was this other set of people who were really quite upset by what he was saying. Yes, Martin was one of the early proponents of this idea. And it is a surprising one. It is one that does seem at first sight, perhaps even to step outside of science. I mean, if what we see out in the cosmos is all we have access to, if all we have access to is our universe, in what scientific sense can you talk about other universes? Can you visit them? Can you experiment? Can you observe them? And if not, are you still doing science? This is not a fringe idea in physics any longer. Many people are spending a lot of time thinking about this idea. If it's not right, a lot of energy is being wasted. But if it is correct, I mean, think about it. This would be the biggest revolution in our thinking about reality that we've ever encountered, our universe being one of many. Holy moly. Well, Martin Rees had that very simple argument. Hey, we had one Big Bang. Why wouldn't there be more? That is the simplest argument for how you could come to this idea. And it goes even further than that. Because when you think about the Big Bang Theory, we all have in mind that the universe began very small and then erupted with space going through this rapid expansion and matter coalescing into stars and galaxies. But there's an aspect of the Big Bang Theory that we don't emphasize enough, which is the traditional Big Bang Theory tells us nothing about what happened at the very beginning. It doesn't tell us what happened at time zero. And we've been struggling to fill in the bang in the Big Bang Inflationary cosmology, as it's called, is a proposal for filling in the bang. And when you study the mathematics of this approach, 
it leads to that very idea that Martin was talking about, that the Big Bang was not a unique event, that there could be many Big Bangs happening all over the universe, each giving rise to its own cosmos. So our everything would be the result of one Big Bang, but there'd be other everythings coming from the other Big Bangs. Some of the parallel universes, uh, the holographic universes, though, that's those are pretty interesting. That's the strangest of all of the multiverse proposals, I have to tell you. It comes out of string theory. And the idea is that according to the math of string theory, everything that we see in the world around us may be in some sense a holographic projection of laws of physics that operate on some distant bounding surface that surround us. And we, we call it a holographic idea because you're familiar with an ordinary hologram. What is that? Well, that's a, a little piece of plastic that has all these etches and swirls on it. You illuminate it with a laser and that creates a realistic three-dimensional image. The idea is that the distant bounding surface where the laws of physics may actually reside would be like the thin piece of plastic and then the laws of physics themselves illuminate in a way that creates the three-dimensional reality that we're familiar with. So the idea would be as I move my hand or scratch my head there's a parallel process that's happening on this distant surface that in some sense may even be more fundamental than the reality that we experience. You've been listening to a 2011 Tech Nation interview with Brian Green. Dr. Green continues to be a professor at Columbia University, where he directs the Institute for Strings, Cosmology, and Astroparticle Physics. His most recent book was just published in February 2020. It's entitled, Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with geneticist Dr. David Johnson, the president and CEO of GigaGen, about their strategy to combine all the antibodies from all the strains of COVID-19 into a single drug. And we talk about the science and the importance it must be given in today's pandemic. Then Azitra's Dr. Travis Whitful talks about our skin microbiome and what they've come up with for skin rashes and cancer patients, eczema, psoriasis, and more. And now, David Johnson. Dr. Johnson, welcome to Tech Nation. Yeah, excited to be here. Well, today's an interesting day to have this particular interview because yesterday the news broke in two highly esteemed top drawer science journals, Nature and Nature Medicine. Well, as the New York Times headline put it, you may have antibodies after corona infection, but not for long. What's up with that? Yeah, I mean, for us, it wasn't very surprising because we've actually been studying this in the lab for quite some time. And so we actually looked at convalescent donors and look to see, you know, how long their antibodies persisted. And we also were in contact with other groups. And, and this is what we've been hearing, um, that coronavirus antibodies, they just don't last very long. And I think it's going to be a big problem for this disease. 
it's going to be a big problem for the vaccines. It's going to be a big problem for the vaccine. If the very best vaccine may induce a, a great response in, in your antibodies, but if it doesn't last very long, it's not a great vaccine. It's better than nothing, but it might not be very protective for very long. In fact, it sounds a little like the flu. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of like the flu, where where the flu... It's yeah. not just that it's a different mix. Yeah. It's also how it's long both, the vaccine lasts. Yeah, yeah, it's both. And I think coronavirus is shaping up in a similar way, um, which I think is it's, it's a bit scary. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and so it'll be it'll be interesting, I think, scientifically to see, you know, how much protection you'll still have over time. You know, is this going to be a if you have a vaccine, is it a once a year shot? Is that going to be good enough? I think that's the, the interesting thing that we don't know yet. You had a really interesting story. Uh, you went to China. Yeah, so I went to China in in the fall, uh, late November, and I actually got back and I had the worst fever I've ever had. Uh, just crazy. I, you know, uh, I don't get sick that much, and when I do, it's more like a cold. So that was really unusual, and it was also really strange because it wasn't like the flu. It, it wasn't the the sort of normal flu like symptoms that you see. And and actually, once uh, the COVID nineteen started coming out. I kind of started thinking that that actually maybe that's what I had uh, back in December. And of course, we I actually will never know, probably, because we, you know, I, I tested myself for, for antibodies and uh, didn't see, see any. So I wasn't really above the level, but this wasn't until April. So it may well have been that I had uh, COVID-19 in 2019. I was one of the early cases, perhaps. And uh, yet I, I didn't have any detectable antibodies left by April. So I guess I, I, I was I was dragged into this field earlier uh, without even realizing it. I have to say, GigaGen, I always think antibodies, you know. And yeah. when you say you, you tested, you mean you tested yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah. You didn't Research send us use off to only. Some <laughs> Research <lab>. use only. <laughs> right, right. You yeah. Well, been. we had to. I mean, for developing our our drug, we actually had to, as part of it, we had to implement an an, an assay. In, in our it's lab, a test, an a assay, test, a test yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in, in the lab uh, to basically be able to screen people's serum um, for for antibodies. So that was a really important uh, thing that we needed to do. And we did it at a time when there wasn't just a journal article that you could look up and follow their prescribed method. Uh, a lot of people were doing this in parallel. And uh, uh, we were we were some of the early guys who, who figured it out. Yeah. Well, I have to say, David, what's important here is not so much that you could screen them, but if GigaGen gets a hold of an antibody, they can grow that antibody and keep it going for a good long time. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, uh, you remember in the news, uh, people were talking about uh, convalescent serum. And so what that is, is essentially antibodies taken from uh, recently sick people who have a immune response against the disease. And so that's essentially you, you take their antibodies directly from their bloodstream and then you give that to another patient. Is that like the plasma that they're talking yeah, about? Yeah, there, you might hear it called uh, convalescent serum or convalescent plasma. They're essentially the same thing. Um, and uh, so, so that's what they're talking about in the news. Um, the challenge, though, with that kind of approach is that you can typically only treat only one or two people with each convalescent serum, convalescent plasma donor. And so it's, it's a really difficult thing to scale, especially when you think about it from the perspective of 
your antibodies only last a few months. So if you have another spike in cases, where do you get your convalescent donors from? Because nobody's around. Uh, with, the old with ones antibodies. are gone. They're gone. They're gone. So so you can't go back and, and mine those again. They've already just kind of disappeared. So what we do is a little different from just capturing the, the plasma. We actually go and take the, the antibody producing cells. And then we capture from the cells what you would call a blueprint, DNA, right? Everybody's heard of DNA. But what is DNA? It's basically a blueprint. So we have a blueprint for the antibodies so that when the next round of coronavirus comes around, we have a blueprint that we can make lots and lots of antibodies rather than having to go back to those donors who, frankly, don't have the antibodies anymore. So um, the DNA-based approach is, uh, I think, really important piece of the puzzle to dealing with coronavirus. Now, there are a number of strains. Do each of those strains have different DNA? Is that how we know they're different strains? Yeah. So there's uh, people are still trying to get their heads around how many different strains of coronavirus there are. Um, but from a, a the the perspective is basically that there are a lot of variants already, and and this is an RNA virus. RNA viruses are known to mutate quickly, and the coronavirus is behaving exactly the same way. Um, so the antibodies mutate as well, or they change as well? The antibodies we will, <laughs> yeah. So that's another interesting thing, too, that there's this interesting evolution. You know, think about like a flower and a bee, right? And how, how the flower and the bee are actually kind of co-evolving, and they're trying to figure each other out throughout the millennia. And um, we do the same thing with viruses. So, so our antibodies actually will change and adapt as the viruses change and adapt. And so that's why it's, uh, it, it, it's actually really important to think about being able to have a diversity of antibodies um, against the coronavirus, because especially if you take from a lot of different people, maybe they've seen different versions of the virus or their immune system works in a slightly different way. So that's another advantage of, of what we do, which is we went out and actually collected, um, in this case, 60 donors, and then looked for the best 16 responders and uh, captured essentially all of their antibodies, the blueprints for their antibodies. And then you pool all that together. So um, we call it a, a polyclonal approach. And if you kind of pick that word apart, poly is many and clonal is, well, a, a clone. So, so you've got many clones in a mixture. Um, so or the, as some people call it, a cocktail. A cocktail. <laughs> same, a craft cocktail, for yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, same thing, a mixture, right? Some sort of mixture that you shake up. And So and, let me ask you, so you have 60 people, yeah. all who have had the coronavirus, yeah. and 16 of them worked out. They were the best ones. What made them the best? Well, we looked at the blood and uh, determined the level of antibodies against the coronavirus uh, using the, the tests that we developed in our lab. And then we prioritized the, the samples based on that level of antibody. And the other thing that we did is we actually looked at the diversity of antibodies in each sample. And so we're, we're trying to, to find a, a nice balance between having a diverse set of antibodies and then also having high activity against the coronavirus, at least the, the variant that exists now, right? So, so what you're trying to do is, is balance future outbreak by having the diversity 
uh, against having activity against the the current uh, uh, form of the virus. You are listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Stanford-educated geneticist David Johnson, the co-founder, president, and CEO of Gigagen, a South San Francisco-based biopharmaceutical company which has developed technology capable of identifying antibodies and a number of relevant characteristics at a rate of millions per hour. So you have this mixture, this cocktail of a whole bunch of antibodies from a whole lot of people who got a whole bunch of different strains and variants of the coronavirus. When do you give that to who and how? Yeah, well, (laughs) I think um, uh, one of my advisors, uh, I I think I was kind of impatient and saying, why does it take, why why is it so long to to get to the clinic, right? I just was frustrated with something, right? And, And he said, you know, Drug development is not really prepared for a pandemic. It's it's a slow process, <laughs> and it's not something where you can just, even if you have the antibody that's going to cure everything, it's not just like you flip a switch and you suddenly have a billion doses. And that's true for a vaccine, too. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a really careful, prescribed process of manufacturing, you have to use very specific manufacturing processes, make sure it's safe. We do testing in animal models to, to make sure it's, it's safe. Um, and then after you do all that, then, then you have to start trials, right, to see if it even works in humans. So it's a long process. Um, and, you know, and I, I think that's really hard thing. I don't think people really understand how much uh, care and time goes into every new drug and every new vaccine. And we are doing it at a speed and a pace and a, and a, and a, um, the faster than ever before. I mean, it's really unprecedented, but it still takes over a year. <laughs> That's right. It still takes, it takes time. Here. Yeah, it still takes time. You know, it's very unfortunate, but, um, and, and I think that's why, you know, uh, everybody talked about flattening the curve when this came out, which was, you know, we, what we what we need to do is just be careful, as careful as we can. You're not going to eliminate it. And then maybe by next year, you'll have uh, various therapeutics and, and vaccines that you can you can uh, address the problem with. Now, the idea for a vaccine is you'd get the vaccine and your body starts automatically generating antibodies. And in the best case, like when we were kids and we all got polio, the polio vaccine, we were immunized for life. It's amazing, right? It's amazing. Yeah. And, but this is not trying to elicit an antibody from you. This is like, okay, we're just going to give it to you because you have the coronavirus and you are pretty darn sick with it. Are you like, is this for people who've really... Yeah, in danger or they're the elderly for, or mm-hmm. with great underlying conditions. Is that where we're going here? Yeah, it's for it's for very sick people. And so I think the um, one thing to think about is that there, there's all kinds of different drugs out there. Right. But um, there are certain drugs that are used as preventative. And that's like a vaccine. You know, it, it, it's like you you take this this thing, this this compound and you 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 then it then prevents you from getting the disease okay um there are also drugs which are used as a therapy and and that's what 
you, you think it is. You're, you're sick, and I'm going to take this to uh, basically prevent it from getting worse and, and, uh, and hopefully uh, uh, cure, the, cure the disease. So uh, our, our drugs are more in the, the, uh, the therapeutic side. Although you could take my drug as a uh, preventive as well, I think it's um, it's not a, as cost effective as a vaccine. Though I think that's the that's the amazing thing about vaccine. They you know you you, you, you to give a billion doses, it has to be ten dollars a dose, right? Right. Whereas antibodies are actually pretty expensive to manufacture. Um, it's uh, uh, you know, again, it's it's a very prescribed process. It's it, there's a lot of purification that goes into it, and it's just expensive to make. Um, and then, is it an injection, or do you have to infuse it like an IV drug? Yeah, or? it's an it's an IV, so it would be given in, in a hospital. Um, so um, yeah, you and, and you could again give it as a, a a a preventive to somebody who's maybe on the front lines, like a like a doctor, and maybe the vaccine isn't good enough, and so you you give them you give them my drug as a preventive as well. Um, yeah. I like your use of my drug, and I have to say, yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, you're working so hard to make this work. <laughs> it's yeah, like, you bet. Yeah. Well, and I I think that's it, it is true. I mean, I I think um, we're we're a very small company. You know, we're we're 37 people. I think um, if somebody from Big Pharma gets up and says my drug, that's that's a little strange because it's you know an organization of you know ten or twenty thousand people, right? <laughs> Whereas, whereas for me, it, it, it kind of is my drug, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, it's money that, that we, we put in and, you know, we put our heart and soul into it and, and just, um, everybody, you know, we, we never shut down, you know, that, that was the kind of interesting thing too. Uh, you know, while everybody or most people was, were at home and, you know, scared, uh, my staff was, was going in to lab every day. And processing these samples, uh, you know, blood from coronavirus oh, patients, it's kind oh, of scary. It's yeah. pretty scary, right? You know, and because they and, didn't know any more in some sense than anybody else did. Everybody, you were just frozen in space. You know? Yeah, and and so th- this was, I mean, amazing for my staff to to just sort of, you know, I I tried to rally the troops and did the best I can. By the end of the day, they took the the really risky, um, uh, really uh, brave steps of going to to work every day and, and and putting together this this product and 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 now it's a uh, you know my drug our drug I guess is a better way to say it is <laughs> is in uh, it's it's being manufactured now and so we've we're we're doing a lot of other stuff but we've we've um we, we in, in some ways we've been successful and and now it's uh, uh at the manufacturing facilities. Well, you've been working on this since February, March, whenever whenever you started working on it, in around there. Um, uh, but this was a this was actually an offshoot or a pivot from what you were doing. Yeah. What were you doing before COVID came along? What were you trying to do with yeah. this ability to take antibodies and collect them and reproduce them and make a medicine out of them? Yeah. Well, we have a, a really unique technology that allows us to to you know get this blueprint of uh, thousands or tens of thousands or even millions of antibodies from from uh, from donors and we had been working on uh, various projects in cancer uh, we also work on a project in a, a disease called immune deficiency 
And these are people who can't make their own antibodies, essentially. So, uh, and, and so we were making drugs for those patients as like a replacement therapy. Um, we still have those projects, but we, we, we pretty much put them on hold for a few months to, to address the pandemic. And, um, you know, we, we had a choice. We, we knew that we had this technology. It, it was, I, I think it's, it was purpose built for these kinds of pandemic responses. Um, and so, you know, we could either decide to just sort of, you know, shut down the lab for a little while and then when, you know, about now we would have been starting up again and, and working on our cancer projects and our, and our other projects. Um, but instead we decided to just keep going and, um, invest some, invest some, some of our, our, uh, technology and our, and our talents in the, in, in putting together a, a new drug here. So, um, you know, I think it was a, a good decision so far. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> kind of hard to sit on the sidelines. Try. Everybody's got to try. It's you know, it's kind of hard to sit on the sidelines. And you know, I know, you know, we we you know we we talk to investors a lot, and you know, they're always the first thing they say is, "Dave, there's seven hundred drugs. I don't even know what the number is, right? Hundreds of drugs, you know, two hundred vaccines, and you know, and and what I always say is, well, first of all." My method is completely different than anyone else's method. So, so that, so that's unique, the first thing. Number one, very unique, right? And so, so, and then, and then I think the other, the other rationale is, well, if you have such a technology, how can you just sit at home and do nothing? Yeah. How, how can you do that? You, you can't do that, right? <laughs> so, so it, it, you know, um, of course that it, it's a risk, and you know, we we may run out of money, you know, but. I thought that the other side of that was way worse, that, that you just sit at home and you do nothing. I mean, that's unbelievable. How can you do that? How can you do that? How can you do that? You know, how, I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night, right? And I, and I actually think that, was, that would have been true for most of my staff. It was a scary time a few months ago, and I think it's still pretty scary. Um, but at least now we know science knows more about the disease, and so we know a little bit more about how to, how to handle it. Um, and yeah, and we've got hundreds of drugs and, and vaccines in development, right? So, you know, you, and then something's going to work. Something's <laughs> going to work. What's that? Dave's drug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So which is this mix of all of these antibodies. Yeah. And, yeah. and then if, if let's say this works out or it's at least one of the solutions, yeah. then, um, over time, if the, uh, if the virus mutates, you just keep looking at these donors and getting some new viruses yeah. and adding it to the mix. Yeah. Yeah. And the good news is, you know, our technology went fast and it, it was great, but the, the more mature we get with our technology, the faster we'll get every time. I mean, uh, one amazing thing, uh, there, there are a few companies out there who, who found monoclonal antibodies. That means that, that one, means one an yeah, antibody. One antibody. So we mono, laugh at your one antibody. <laughs> mono one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, uh, and, uh, uh, and if you have something like this, yeah. you have a virus, you yeah. don't just have one antibody you create against it. Yeah. Or is that true? People have many, many antibodies. So, so, you know, we're, we're finding that typically each donor that we found has dozens of antibodies directed against coronavirus. It, it, and, and so, so um, just one antibody isn't necessarily protective. Um, but um, yeah, where, where I was going with this is that uh, uh, prior technologies like 
like these monoclonal antibodies, they actually went really fast. It was pretty incredible. They, they're ready in clinical studies and they just started looking for the antibodies in February, right? So, so what we're hoping is that after we go through this whole process once, that next time we can do it in a few months. I've been speaking with Dr. David Johnson, the president and CEO of GigaGen, about their ability to identify and reproduce multiple COVID-19 antibodies. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, I'll speak with Dr. Travis Whitfull from Azitra Biosciences. He talks about our skin microbiome, what can go wrong, and how Azitra hopes to set it right. Stay with us. to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. David Johnson, the president and CEO of GigaGen, about their ability to identify and reproduce multiple COVID-19 antibodies, creating a potential treatment and the status of their effort. People have many, many antibodies. So, so you know, we're, we're finding that typically each donor that we found has dozens of antibodies directed against coronavirus. It, it, and, and so, so um, just one antibody isn't necessarily protective. Um, but um, yeah, where, where I was going with this is that uh, uh, prior technologies like, like these monoclonal antibodies, they actually went really fast. It was pretty incredible. They, they're ready in clinical studies and they just started looking for the antibodies in February, right? So so what we're hoping is that after we go through this whole process once, that next time we can do it in a few months. Um, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll have more money too. So, that, so, that, uh, so that'll, that'll be good as well. Um, but yeah, no, technology evolves. And, and I think it's interesting to think about um, how crises really can push technology forward. Think about like World War II and how much how terrible that was, but how much amazing technology came out of World War II 
because it's a crisis and everybody, you know, tries to figure stuff out. And, they, and it's a very singular kind of goal. So I do think that the biotech industry is just, you know, it's, it's already had an amazing century. <laughs> and, and I think um, the, the, the last couple, the, the next couple of years are going to be, I think, really a golden age of just, you know, innovation. Because what, what people learn from coronavirus, what I learned from coronavirus is now going to be applied to everything else in my portfolio. And we're going to come up with completely new ideas based on what we learned and how we innovated this year. Um, so, so I do think that, you know, the science will often go in, in leaps and then there's, you know, times when not much is happening. And I think this is a leap. This is the time where everybody's stepping up. Because yeah. everyone was doing other things switch yeah. to this yeah. and there will be there will be a positive blowback on everything else yeah. if only yeah. that we can accelerate the process yeah exactly and so so this accelerates that was the other thing that was going through my mind was like this is an opportunity to accelerate this process whereas maybe before from a regulatory perspective it might have taken 10 years to get my first you know uh, product on the market with this with this technology. You know, I don't know how fast it'll be here, but but certainly, it 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 changes the conversation in terms of talking to the regulatory authorities and and just you know, um, there's an urgency about it, right? And so so now some of our other ideas to treat you know immune deficiency, we have ideas for you know cancer, like I mentioned, uh, autoimmune disease. The, now, the, the cancer and antibodies. How does that work? Yeah. Uh, well, one of the the most innovative drugs in the last ten years uh, in cancer is an antibody. Um, so which drug uh, is that? So this is uh, it's pembrolizumab. It's a, a, a Anyways, it's you'd, a you'd have to be it's a, it's a whole it different know. story, but it's a <laughs> but it's an antibody. It's an antibody, yeah. And so, so for cancer, um, you know, antibodies for the last twenty years have been the the hottest thing. Um, so, you know, we've been thinking about ways to leverage our technology in in the cancer field as well. And and again, like things that I ideas that I was thinking about before. Ah, just a regulatory, ah, just, you know, ah, Forget you know, it, I'm uh, not going to get into Forget it. about it, right? And and now I'm looking at it and I'm saying, huh, maybe I can think about that, you know, once the dust settles, you know, in the next couple of years. Um, and then the regulatory authorities will, will say, yeah, we've seen something like this. Okay, well, now it's a different disease. And 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 I think that there are a lot of groups doing this sort of, and, and diagnostics, I'm sure you've heard people doing amazing CRISPR technologies with diagnostics that... That wouldn't have happened, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so, so I think there's exciting leaps forward. Um, I, I think that the only way to solve this is is lots of really good science, broad, broad science, thinking outside the box. And um, I think another thing, you know, we were talking about the news. Um, uh, we were uh, in Barda, for example, um, was, was apparently cut some funding for for certain types of, of therapies, specifically for lung damage. And and you know, I, okay, so all right, so so it sounds like a big number, but but Barda is putting in something like three or four billion dollars to coronavirus, right? The economy is poised to lose ten trillion dollars this year, just the U.S. economy, right? And so I don't even know what does that even translate to the world. You know how many tens of trillions of dollars, right? And and you're going to tell me that four. 
billion dollars is a lot of money in the context of 10 trillion no, <laughs> right? Like we but should they're be not putting... going to they're not going to be funding or they stopped funding very quietly, stopped funding treatments. They were yeah, like, you they, can't we want to we want to treat yeah. vaccines. And which is fine. No, I, I think there should be money. Don't take any money from vaccines. No, I don't, don't take abandon any money. Right. the treatments is but, what you're but, saying. Yeah. But their complaint was we have a limited budget. And and my point is your budget should be a trillion dollars because <laughs> <laughs> because because for every year you know, that you're that you have a pandemic like this, it's going to be another 10 trillion dollars. So so I mean, uh, you know, what's another billion? You know, like, I mean, come on. So so, you know, I think that's a very short sighted thing. Um, and then I, and I think also, you know, going back to leaps in technology, it's not a waste of money to put a lot of money into science ever. It just isn't because because you're going to, you know, Okay, you know, think about just random technologies like GPS. You know, people wouldn't think of iPhones when they came up with GPS, right? They didn't think of, you know, um, Facebook when they started DARPAnet, right? You yeah. know, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's just like, why not? You know, it, it, first of all, it's, it's great for, it's great for addressing the pandemic. Second of all, it's, it's, it's going to pay dividends for the economy, literally. I think one thing that's so yeah. hard for, for the whole baby boomers to understand, and let's not forget, most of the people in Congress are baby boomers. The president is a baby boomer. Yeah. And they're not scientists. Yeah. And their expectation of a vaccine is that, oh, we're going to get it just like polio. Yeah. And then uh, we'll be all done. And yeah. even if they find a vaccine, the first swath, it's, it's going to work for people who are not the what is now the elderly, the yeah. baby boomers. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be quite some time. So this is when being misinformed or underinformed about science is dangerous for the entire society. Yeah. And, and I think it's, um, I mean, I don't want to get political, but I think we are going through a time where experts haven't really been looked at with respect recently. Mm -hmm. And, and I understand why that is. It's, you know, uh, people are frustrated and they want to point fingers and, and experts are looked at as the elite and we've, we, we failed people. Right. And, and I get it. I get that there's anger, but you know, look, <laughs> I, I, again, science is the only thing that's going to get us out of this and wishful thinking, you know, uh, is not going to get us out. Right. So, so we do have to, to believe in science. That is what separates us man from beast. And, and, you know, if this were, if this were devastating a wild population, there's nothing they could do about it, but be devastated. And, and, and there would be, you know, a lot of, a lot of death, right? I always say science seems like yeah. a noun, but it's a verb. Yeah. <laughs> it's an yeah. action. It's about yeah. action right now. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's a, it's a, it's a mentality. And I mean, it's, so if you are a scientist, it becomes a way of life and you look at everything that way. And I think it can be really difficult to sit down and and try to converse with somebody who just doesn't even have the perspective that science is really something that's worth thinking about. 
I think society in general, um, I, I just wish there was more, um, more faith and, and interest and, and belief in science as, as a way to, uh, to address this sort of problem. Well, you did mention money, and money always makes a difference. Oh, it doesn't always make a difference. Uh, but with, um, with current funding that you have, when, how soon can you get first in human yeah. from today? And we're, we're at the uh, late latter part of June. Yeah. And if you had all the money in the world, they say, yep, one more billion, <laughs> one more billion here. Yeah. And we're going to give it all to Dave. Yeah. When's the, when's the first time you could get first in you? Yeah. So I think that, well, it's, you know, a lot of moving parts, but I think that the, the one thing that would help us a lot is if we had our own production facilities. So we don't have our own factories. So a lot of the big guys, they have their own factories. And so it's it's as simple as walking over to the next department and, and just saying, make me my drug. And then they just do it. Whereas what Gigagen has to do is hire a contractor who has the manufacturing facility and then you got to figure out and talk. And, you know, and, and so that that, frankly cost months because because you have to we call it technology transfer which is exactly what it sounds like you're you're taking your technology and then trying to teach somebody else how to do it and they can't just do it at day one and in business school they say it's a virtual corporation doesn't it work great not in this case (laughs) yeah not in this case I, i think it does for you know it's not software right you know you can you can take software and you can put it in somebody else's computer and it's probably going to run. Well, not always, I guess, but, um, in this case it requires months. So that, that's the one thing. So, so that would save me a few months. Um, and, and, you know, we could, we could move a lot faster. Um, so min max, what would be the shortest you could get in first in well, your I, and what I, would be the longest? I think Just the shortest is again, looking at the guys who already have antibodies in the clinic, they started in February and then, and now it's June and they did their first dose. So I think that's it. almost the fastest you can produce if you've got like all your own technology and, and, uh, so and manufacturing. So right now you have yeah. your cocktail. So the, yeah. so that would be another few months. So for us, it'll be, you know, and, and by the way, this is like way faster than normal. Normally this is like a 24 month process. So, so it seems like the fastest we can do it is another six months. Uh-huh. So, so this is because again, we have to, we have to do the tech transfer. Um, and, uh, you know, there's other crazy stuff like you have to do animal testing and we don't have our own, you know, testing facility for that. Whereas the big guys would. And so now I have to put it, get a slot in the animal testing facility. So again, we're, you know, the, the, although I should say that the good thing is, you know, we, even though we don't have our own facilities, we were able to find committed partners who, prioritized our project because it's a coronavirus project and and actually they <laughs> you, you kind of feel bad but they, they you know they had they had other disease areas they had slots already reserved for their manufacturing and they basically kind of booted those people for a few months to sorry sorry um <laughs> and uh you know uh so you feel bad for those projects but i do think that's the only way again to to address the pandemic you really have to you have to prioritize it um and you know i, I it, it may be that those other groups just 
didn't care because they were they were doing other stuff as well so so yeah it's but and again like i said that's yeah, that's really one of the things reasons yeah. is that some of these clinical trials have yeah. been put off and so they didn't yeah. need the drugs as fast and so it was a that was a, a logical reshuffling of what they were doing uh, right you know? right exactly i mean i i think one thing that we've been thinking about for our cancer programs if we were you know planning a January 2021 start kind of seems like a bad idea, you know, because because you don't want to necessarily start that cancer uh, program in the middle of a coronavirus. And and then you're trying to dose cancer patients and the ambulances are all coming in and, and you're and then the doctors are trying to deal with coronavirus. So it's it's. You know, it's it it may not be the best time to to be to be a doing that. Stoppage sort of thing. on the science on the other side. Well, yeah, Dave, right. <laughs> Dave, yeah, truly, truly. Well, yeah. Dave, I hope I never get the coronavirus or have any of the conditions you're working on. <laughs> but should I get a condition that you're working on today or in some yeah. future day, I look forward to taking something called Dave's drug. All right. Well. <laughs> That'll be our trademark. You got it. You got it. Dave, thank you so much. Uh, Please come back. Keep us updated, won't you? Yeah, thanks for the time. Dr. David Johnson is the co-founder, president, and CEO of Gigagen, located in South San Francisco. More information is available at gigagen.com. That's G-I-G-A-G-E-N, gigagen.com. heard of an oncodermatologist? As if cancer and receiving chemotherapy is bad enough, many patients develop skin rashes, and much of that has to do with a breakdown in their skin's microbiome. We've all heard a lot about gut microbiomes, keeping the good bacteria, viruses, and other microorganisms all in balance. Well, your skin, which covers the entirety of your body, has its own microbiome as well. And the healthy microorganisms that live there are essential to keeping your skin healthy, just as missing microorganisms or unhealthy ones can cause problems. Dr. Travis Whitfel is the co-founder and director of Advanced Technology at Azitra Biosciences. Well, Travis, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks so much for having me. We've all learned in recent years that we have a gut microbiome, and we have to take care of it. But now I understand... There's a skin microbiome. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of attention in the gut microbiome recently. There's, uh, you know, these probiotics and, and uh, you know, now there's this kind of emerging uh, gut-brain connection. Um, but what a lot of people don't think about is, is the skin and uh, being the largest organ of the body um, and the, the first, you know, barrier to the environment, uh, the, the skin is actually teeming with microbes. Um, and there's there's a, a really big interplay between the skin and the microbiome um, in kind of maintaining human health uh, and and protecting against pathogens. Uh, so there's there's this thing called colonization resistance, uh, where you have the the natural uh, microbiome on the skin uh, that helps kind of prevent uh, pathogens invading into the skin. Um, and a lot of times the, the microbiome can become disrupted in the skin, uh, leading to different uh, skin diseases, uh, especially eczema, 
um, and so some other diseases are uh, very strongly associated with uh, disruptions in the microbiome. You get in the shower every day, you take your soap, you wash off. We kind of think we get out of the shower, there isn't any microbiome left, <laughs> you know, microbes. It's like, didn't we wash all those off? They're still there. They're still what? there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they are, actually is a pretty deep reservoir of microbes that even if you wash the skin, it's pretty uh, stable over time, which is uh, good and, and interesting. Now, we've all had rashes. I understand there are some rashes that are associated with cancer. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, as these therapies for, for chemotherapy and cancer get more complicated, uh, there are quite a bit of side effects. Um, so, for example, in, in EGFR... Uh, EGFR? EGFR, that's uh, a common target in lung cancer. Uh-huh. Um, so for, for a lot of these uh, uh, lung cancer drugs, um, there are about a quarter million patients uh, on these these drugs. And uh, 80% of them develop a cancer rash. Um, that's kind of secondary uh, from their the chemotherapy treatment. Um, and it's it's so severe that, that a lot of these patients even stop their chemo, um, chemotherapy, uh, which if you can imagine, you know, they... Because of a cancer, because of a rash, rash. on your skin. Yeah, exactly. It's that bad. And, and uh, these uh, oncodermatologists, that's kind of a new field of, you know, oncology and dermatology. Uh, but a lot of these these physicians are, are really concerned and, and uh, are looking for a new treatment. Uh, right now, they're using long-term steroids or antibiotics, uh, really messes up the system. So there's, uh, there's a really big unmet need that's uh, surprising, but, uh, but definitely unmet. What causes the rash? Or do we know? I th- yeah, it's it's very interesting. There's uh, there's been some some more uh, you know really uh, hardcore scientific studies that have kind of uh, looked at this. Uh, so for for the EGFR uh, therapies, for example, um, uh, the EGFR ablation leads to the host defenses uh, being suppressed. Normally, the skin produces uh, molecules and proteins that keep out bad bugs. Um, and so what the, the EGFR inhibitors uh, stop that process. Um, oh, they're inhibiting them too. Yeah, yeah. So you have oh. uh, a defenseless skin, basically. Um, so from there, Staph aureus, which is a, a bad bug, uh, colonizes the skin, and that's what causes the rash. And then you see the rash. Right. Wow. Yeah. And we already learned that you can't get in the shower and wash this stuff off. You yeah, know. it's still there. So. Everybody is still there. Yeah. Now, it's not the only thing, but I know it's one of the things that Azitra is working on. What exactly are you doing there? Yeah, so we are taking uh, basically a, a good bug, uh, Staph epidermidis, and we're making our a product. A different bug. Yes. So it's not Staph aureus. This is a Staph epidermidis, which is a good bug. Uh, really, really well documented properties about it. Uh, uh, helps with uh, wound healing, uh, anti-inflammatory, um, and it inhibits Staph aureus. So essentially, we are rebalancing the microbiome um, and having the Staph epidermidis act on the skin uh, as an anti-inflammatory and anti-Staph aureus. So it's not from the inside, it's from the outside? Yes, it's from the outside. And it's a good bug found on most people's skin, but uh, especially underrepresented in these patients. Um, and a lot of these, these patients have what, what people call dysbiosis. Uh, and it's essentially a, a disruption in the microbiome. Now, is this a cream? Basically, it's a it's an ointment. So the, ooh, an ointment. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but that means you lay it on and it stays there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's um, you know working with a live uh, biotherapeutic or live 
a live organism is, is it's a little bit complicated to formulate um, and to still have, you know, room temperature stability and, and all of th- these things in manufacturing. So it's not it's not as easy to formulate as, a, you know, any any drug, but uh, we have an ointment on the skin that's applied topically. It feels pretty nice. So well, That actually is, is part of my question there. I was originally like, hey, you found a bug, just get it on the skin. You know, what's so what's so hard about that? I mean, it's used to living in a skin. Yes, <laughs> for the starters. It's not used to living anyplace else. You right. can't just like shoot it on, or you know. And it's like by the time it gets there, it's not going to live. So you have to have it being able to be suspended in this ointment, if you will, mm. continue to be alive. Yes, get it on your skin, continue to be alive, get into the skin. So it presents a lot of challenges. How do you test this? We use a variety of different parameters to look at for, uh, you know, testing this this kind of microbe. So, um, you know, we're working with different mice, um, and the, our favorite model is is using uh, basically human skin in a petri dish. Uh, so, <laughs> the, the okay, technical term. Take a breath to go. Yuck. Okay, now, <laughs> now we'll uh, now we'll proceed with yeah. the some equivalent of human skin in a petri dish. You know. Yes. Then you're able to. Do you put it? Do you put the bug in with the ointment or just the bug? A bunch of bugs. Just the bug itself. Um, we 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 have studied with with the ointment, but you know it's it's good to just look at the bugs. Uh, so we do it in this petri dish. We look at competition against Staph aureus, uh, for example. Uh, we look at biofilm production, and, and we see that our bug is able to reduce Staph aureus uh, population and reduce uh, the biofilm formation from Staph aureus. Um, and we're also able to show that uh, Staph epidermidis interacts with the human skin and produces those defenses um, that keeps out the bad bugs. Now, occasionally when we're talking with people about skin, they mention biofilm. What is it, and is it good, or is it, or is it bad? I think in the context here, it's bad. So biofilm is um, a patho- pathogenic factor uh, from Staph aureus. Meaning uh, it's bad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's pathogenic. Yeah. Pathogenic is bad. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, so, right. yeah, it produces a biofilm, and, and some people can, uh, you know, you have these staph infections. That's that's really what's going on is, is the staph aureus, uh, and it produces this biofilm. Uh, which kind of makes it really difficult to treat. Um, so this, uh, our staph epidermidis, we found, uh, produces a, a, a protease, um, but it basically digests a biofilm of staph aureus. So have you tried this on humans yet? We have. Uh, we finished a phase one uh, safety study earlier this year. That's the first step? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it was well tolerated, no, no issues at all. Uh, we found the right dose that we wanted to move forward with. Uh, people said it felt felt great, so uh, we're pretty excited about the results. Uh, now the real work begins in in the phase two studies that we have planned over the next twelve months, um, and going into actual patients. Now, how are they going to be structured? Um, so we have so we have uh, five different uh, products, and uh, they'll each be structured according to their indication. So we're going after various indications from this cancer rash. Um, to eczema, uh, potentially psoriasis, um, and a rare disease called Netherton syndrome. And with all of these, it's a little bit different based on the disease. Uh, but the the FDA has said we can go straight into patients with all of these, which is great news because normally you have to go to a phase one and safety and healthy volunteers and a phase two in patients. So we can go straight to phase two uh, in all of those indications, which is really great. 
um, and hope to have, you know, phase two uh, efficacy studies uh, in the next year. So things actually could move very, very fast. Surprisingly, yeah. In in the skin, you know, it's uh, very cheap uh, per patient. You're not working with, you know, oncology or, or kidney d- diseases. Um, so it's cheap, it's fast. You can see an effect, you know. You can see an effect. Visualize it. You yeah. don't have to have a exactly. You don't have to have a big test to see if the skin is getting better. Exactly. And and is it difficult to recruit patients with these kinds of skin problems? Not at all. Uh, a lot of these uh, targets that we're going after are very untreated, and there's a big unmet need in all of them that that we're trying to address. Um, even eczema, uh, as common as it is, is is still. Um, a big unmet need, and, and a lot of people are looking for new therapies. So uh, we haven't found that it's going to be hard at all to recruit a lot of people that are, are very excited and they, they want to try this. So Now, we always think about creating molecules or cells or drugs um, that have some kind of proprietary thing, different thing, unique thing that you did to them that you can patent and protect. Mm. Did you just find a bug and are sticking it in the ointment? I don't want to. I don't want to minimize all the things that you've done here. Uh, but is it a naturally occurring bug, or did you make any adjustments to it? That's a great question. So, uh, typically, you can't patent a naturally occurring uh, organism. So uh, we're very aware of that, and we've created some some uh, strategies around that. Um, so we've created uh, in. Most of our, our uh, strains that are therapeutics, we've engineered them. So that's what's unique about it. And that you can patent. Yes. Um, so we've we've engineered uh, controllability. Uh, it's called oxytrophy, where uh, it's dependent on on the formulation that you use. Uh, otherwise, they would die out. Um, so that's that's the first uh, strategy that we used. Um, and we have also engineered uh, some of our strains to express human proteins. Um, so essentially, the, uh, it's almost like a drug delivery system where uh, you have the bugs that colonize the skin and they deliver proteins uh, locally to the skin. That, that, that might be needed by the skin itself exactly. in these conditions. Right, right. Um, so all of those are proprietary. We've also added some... Uh, you know, filed some IP around the formulation and, and stuff like that. But, um, I mean, you can go out and, and find this, you know, strain uh, on people's skin uh, most likely. But, uh, you know, the engineering is where we specialize and, and make it proprietary. Well, Travis, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming in. I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you. Thanks so much. Dr. Travis Whitfull is the co-founder and director of Advanced Technology at Azitra Biosciences. More information is available at azitrainc.com. That's azitra, A-Z-I-T-R-A, Inc., I-N-C, azitrainc.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. 
Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.